All right, thank Connie for that. Second Peter chapter three tonight. Everybody need notes out there? Everybody have notes? Need some notes right here. Somebody can help Miss Sheila. Anybody else need notes? We're good. Second Peter chapter three, and we're going to try our best to finish out Second Peter tonight. Very important part of the passage. And we're going to go back to verse number 12 to get the context here for the beginning of, of our sermon tonight, verse 13. So 2 Peter 3 and verse number 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We'll take our phrase from verse number 18 tonight, grow in grace. And of course, we'll get there at the end of the message tonight. But we start back up in verse number 13. And we continue on this topic of new heavens and new earth. And what does that all mean? And let's pray. Father, would you work now during our lesson tonight? I pray that the scriptures would come alive to us through the living Word of God, that the Spirit of God would illuminate and highlight for us these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Go to Revelation, if you would, because Revelation speaks much of these end times as well. And let's look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Okay, now Revelation 21 gives us this account in verse number 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, which means, I guess, that there were no more oceans. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you can continue to read there in Revelation 21 uh, about some of the details of the New Jerusalem of, and of heaven. And so when we go into 2 Peter chapter 3, and it says we look for new heavens and a new earth, Revelation would seem to back up that this is a totally new heaven and a totally new earth, and that the first heaven and the first earth are passed away that there are no more. However, if you go back to Matthew 19, I'm going to show you three other passages quickly. 
that give us maybe a different take on this. And the truth is, God has prepared a place for us, and Jesus has promised that he will come again and receive us unto himself. And so, no matter which of these views is correct, it's going to be better than we could ever imagine. Matthew 19, and this is Jesus himself speaking, in verse number 28. And there's a word in here I want you to notice. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of God shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye all shall, shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is a, an interesting Greek word, and a, it's a palingenesia. So you've got Genesis going on here, but it's a new Genesis. It's making new or recreation. And the only other time it occurs in the New Testament is referring to our salvation in Titus 3.5 where it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And then it goes on to say by the, the washing of regeneration. So it's that same word, regeneration. And here Jesus talks about regeneration. And so uh, that suggests maybe that some things from this earth or this uh, earth that we know, this heaven that we know, may be restored or regenerated. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we hit it again. And this isn't a message that Peter gave. The, the second sermon here in the book of Acts, the first was at Pentecost. And this was at uh, the temple at Solomon's porch when they healed the lame man. In Acts chapter 3, verse number 20, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of, look at this, restitution. The restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, when we hear the word restitution, we normally would think of something that's already been there that is restored or is placed into restitution. Now, this is a different Greek word, and this one is so long that it's almost hard to even say it. It's apokatastasios, something like that. Uh, it's basically apokatastasios. Right? Everybody's got that. Is You guys know that word. Um, it means restoration. The only pl other place it's used is in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 6. So let's go back to this. And we're just doing a little study here as we get going tonight because this is a very interesting topic. And here, they're, going, they're headed out for the ascension. And uh, Jesus said, wait for the promise of the Father and and he says, you're going to get the Holy Ghost. Verse number 6, Acts 1. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And so that's that same Greek word. And this is talking about the restoration of Israel, the land that Israel was supposed to get through the uh, Abrahamic covenant and then the Davidic covenant and all of these things in the Old Testament. Let's go to one more, Romans chapter 8. 
And none of these are conclusive proof that the current earth model and the current heavens model are going to be restored or renewed. These are just some good scriptures to look at as you decide this in your own mind. Romans 8, verse number 21. Because the creature itself, talking about the human being or the human race, the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, look at this, the redemption of our body. So what this passage is saying is not only humanity, sinful human beings are waiting for our bodies to be redeemed in the end times, but that the very creation itself under the curse because of Adam's sin, because of our sin, the entire creation is going to be restored. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to go back to the original Garden of Eden, where everything was made, where God said it was good, and then he said it was good, and then he said it was good, and it was good, and then he said it was very good. I like to go back and see what that was like, right? I want to know what the mosquito was actually made for. I want to know what the uh, the mole that digs up in your yard, what was that actually about, right? Was he supposed to you know, do something different? What was the snake originally there for? Because he used to be kind of a different creature. And the lion uh, used to lie with the lamb. And of course, that's what Isaiah says is going to happen again. The child will be able to go and play by the hole of a snake and just hang out. And the only children who play with snakes now are the very strange children who later in life will jump out of airplanes with or without parachutes and do crazy things. Um, how many of you like snakes? Anybody like snakes? You've never even known a snake. You've only met like three in your life. It's my son. Um, you like snakes, Chuck? You have a snake at your house? Okay, that's good. Um, <laughs> when I was growing up, we had friends who had pet boa constrictors. And anytime I went to their house, I didn't stay long. <laughs> because I was so little, I, I wrestled at 61 pounds in the fifth grade. Can you imagine that? It's not funny, Jim. You have to laugh at me. In the fifth grade, I was wrestling second graders. And sometimes they were putting me down. Um, but every time I went over to their house, it's like, that thing I'm pretty sure could swallow me. This snakes swallow people. So um, anyway, but the new heaven and the new earth. So here's what, how we say it in your notes. So this is an interesting take on it. Matthew 19, Acts 3, and Romans 8 all suggest that the new heavens and new earth will be a restoration of the present. Now, obviously, it could be anything God has mandated or wants it to be. We cannot even begin to understand the scope of the universe that's already here. We can't even begin to understand the scope of creation that's already here. But when it says that the elements are going to melt with fervent heat, there's going to be some type of restoration uh, 
through fire, trial through fire, that makes a new heaven and a new earth, it's going to be the ultimate of God's perfection. And so that's an introductory thought. But I want to go back to 2 Peter 3 now. And Peter didn't want them to get hung up on how the earth was going to be dissolved and restored. He wanted them to see something very important as a value out of it. So 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. So that was the key word. Look for new heavens and new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, now it's going to hit us with it again, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And so the larger point made is that the believers should be looking for such things, not focusing on our current earthly pursuits. And that's what we mentioned from verse number 12 last week. If everything here is going to be dissolved, then why are we so intent on spending our time focusing on it? Right? If we know that it's all going to be destroyed. It was interesting. Uh, we took some kids on an incentive trip to Portland this week. And they earned uh, a river cruise tour on Friday afternoon as on the Willamette. And so we went uh, upriver about an hour, or downriver about an hour. What, whichever direction we went, we went about an hour, and then we came back. I don't know which way it was. It was upriver or downriver. Um, it must have been upriver because we were going faster on the way back. Is that right? Does that make sense? You guys, you got to help me a little bit here. But alongside of the river, as you go... They've got these big piers or posts that they've uh, driven into the riverbed, and then people attach their houseboats to them. And so they've got this, these entire sections or neighborhoods of little houseboats that are sitting out on the river. And you're thinking, man, this looks like not a real good place to spend $250,000. You know, the insurance must be unreal because they said, well, the last time we had a flood, and he gave the year or whatever, he said the water on the river went all the way up to the top of that post. And the posts are higher than any of the houses. So he said it's designed, if it works right, where the house that's sitting on the little slip will just slip right up with, uh, with the water and go all the way up to the top of those posts. It's designed that way, Right? just designed that way. There are a lot of things that are designed a certain way that don't necessarily work the way that they're designed. But it's, it's just interesting how we as human beings get so wrapped up in investing in things that are someday going to be gone. And that's what Peter's point is to us. He says to him again at the end of verse 13, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, when we see wherein dwelleth righteousness, we understand that he's talking about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And if Jesus is there, that's what makes it righteous. It, it's not made righteous by us, it's made righteous by him. 
We said it this way in your notes. Living a righteous life that diligently seeks to please God can only be through salvation through Christ. That's the only way we have this righteousness. And it's the only way we are justified or made at peace with us and God. It's the only way that we can be sanctified or set apart for the Master's use is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to list some of these things in verse 14 again. He says, be diligent. Now, if you remember, this is the way he had started 2 Peter. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to notice how he had opened the, the letter. Verse number 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. And he went through the litany of ingredients that we need in our Christian life. Verse number 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence. And so this was a key or a motto for this entire letter, was that they would be diligent about this thing of serving God. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. I remember when I was in high school, um, some friends of ours who thought that I was a responsible young man said that they wanted me to house sit for them. And I, you know, my mom said it was okay and she thought it was a good idea. And I was driving a car and, and so I was going to house sit for them. Well, one of the things that my mom just kept hammering on to me, because this is before cell phones and everything, is you've got to leave the house better than you found it. You have to be diligent that there's not a spot, that there's not a blemish, that you don't do anything. You don't kill their cat. You, you, know, you make sure that the dog is kept right. Make sure the yard is kept nice. And so, actually, the first time I stayed there, this was before I had a car, and I rode my bike down to the grocery store because I think they left me like 3 or $4 or something for food. This is back in the 80s, okay? So you could buy a lot back then. And so I bought uh, like a pound of hamburger, and I had never made a hamburger in my life. And uh, I bought a couple other things, and I took it back to their house, and I got all their pans out. And, uh, and then I, I was going to make this huge hamburger, right? And so I had never made a hamburger. And I did the whole pound. I just, I just kind of mashed it a little bit, put it on a pan, and it, it looked like it was brown, so I flipped it. And uh, then the other side looked brown, too. So I kind of started eating that thing. I was like, whoa, I messed up on this. It's still mooing. So I cooked it again. And I think I made kind of a mess of the kitchen. And then the day was coming where they were coming back. And I felt like I was in just a you know, a flurry of trying to get things ready and make sure it was right and make sure that, you know, I'd, I'd taken the trash out, like clean the pans. And have you ever felt like this in your life where you you feel like you're in a hurry to try to get it right, to get it ready? And what Peter's saying is don't let it pile up on you. Be diligent to daily, in the present tense, keep things right with God. Because if you let it pile up on you, you're going to get off course, or you're going to get off path. And when the Savior returns, you may be off path. And that's not how you want to be found. You want to be found in Him, as John mentions also in 1 John, in peace, without spot, and blameless. All right.
We get to verse number 15, and we begin to see another interesting point of this passage. It said, account that the long-suffering our Lord is salvation. He mentions again God's long-suffering. He'd already mentioned this in verse number 9 in a previous study we talked about. But he gets to the second part of this verse, and look what he says. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now this is, this is very unique, because Peter and Paul are both called apostles. Peter, though, had been in the inner circle of the actual group of disciples, and Paul had come along later as the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter and Paul were contemporaries. Most historians would tell us that they were both killed by the same emperor. Paul was beheaded by Nero. Peter was crucified upside down, and his body hung for three days in Rome. And it happened, they, they, most histories tell us, within a year of each other. Something even closer than that. And so Peter and Paul have this relationship in a kind of sort of way, but it hadn't always been cupcakes. It hasn't, hadn't always been, you know, just a sweet relationship. Look back at Galatians chapter 2. And this is uh, in Paul's letter to a Gentile church at Galatia. Okay, so he's writing to this church at Galatia. This is part of Scripture, as we'll talk about in just a second. If you look at Galatians 2, verse number 9, And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. That's why we shake hands, by the way, the right hand of fellowship. It's right there in the Bible. It's, I'm telling you, that's why we shake hands with each other. That you guys don't believe me, you think I'm joking, I'm telling you the truth. That we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. We decided to take that verse instead of greeting each other with a holy kiss. Right? Because that's also in the Bible. Now if you go to some countries, they do it the other way. They chose that verse. We chose the right hand of fellowship. The Russians choose kiss on the mouth no matter what gender you are. I'm telling you the truth. So Everybody always thinks I'm messing with you. I'm telling you the truth. Now, look what happened in verse 11, though. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But then when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And so verse number 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so there was a big dispute going on here. And Peter called, or Paul called Peter the Apostle, one of the inner three of the disciples of Jesus. He called him out publicly on this issue. And he said, Peter, I find it interesting, he says this before all these Jewish guys, I find it interesting that before all the Jews showed up, that you were eating with the Gentiles. 
But now that the Jewish brothers are in town, you won't dine with us. Crickets. It's just, it wasn't good. But, here's what's so great about this. Jesus had already said it. Let's go ahead and show it to you. Might, Might as well show you this. Look back in Matthew 18. Because Jesus had already talked about what would happen. And Peter, even though in his early life he was brash, and he was kind of arrogant, and he put his foot in his mouth a lot, in his later years he had grown in grace, which is how we'll end the, the lesson tonight, and he was able to accept a rebuke. Look at what Jesus had told them in Matthew 18. Verse number 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Now, Jesus had given this model of how church discipline works. And it never did Peter think that he was going to be the subject of this from Paul. Paul didn't go to him one-on-one. Paul didn't go to him in a small group. Paul called him out before the whole assembly and said, Peter, you're not doing the right thing. You're treating the Gentiles like they're second-class Christians. And you can't expect that they are going to live for God if you do that. And boy, he really let him have it. And he said, we should make it easy for the Gentiles to follow Christ. We shouldn't make them try to follow Jewish customs to be believers in Jesus. And you know, Peter accepted the rebuke. And Peter had his life changed through this to where he had a view of the Gentiles like none of the other original disciples of Jesus had. In fact, Peter became a messenger to Gentiles and specifically to Cornelius the centurion in Acts chapter 10. And so if you think about what all had taken place here in Galatians, now I want you to go back and and remember this context as we see this again in 2 Peter. All right, so 2 Peter 3, verse number 15. Take into account that Paul had called called him out publicly. He says at the end of verse number 15, Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And so he said in your notes, Through the Spirit, Peter certified the authenticity of Paul's epistles to the saints, though Paul had rebuked him. Now he goes even further. That's not the end of the sentence. Verse 16 is also included. And I underlined some things in verse 16 that are very important. As also, look what it says, in all his epistles. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus, an author of Scripture, a human author of Scripture, is certifying all of the Pauline epistles as Scripture in this verse. He just certified them all. And he's going to take it even up a notch at the end of the verse. Look what he says at the end of the verse. 
as they do also the other scriptures. He's talking about the people who take the scriptures and twist them. He said, in all of Paul's epistles and also the other scriptures. So he equates them and puts them on the same level as the Old Testament. We said it this way in your notes. Verse 16 lists Paul's epistles alongside the other scriptures of the Old Testament. And so this is a very important set of verses where you have Peter, under the Spirit of God, growing in grace, now under the authorship of God, certifying all of the letters that Paul had written to the churches and individuals in the New Testament. And uh, so it's a unique passage. Now let's look at the inside of verse 16. In which are some things hard to be understood? Now some commentators said that this was just a little jab back at Paul. I don't think it is. I think he's just saying, hey, in some of Paul's epistles, there are some subjects that are difficult to deal with. Think about what some of the things Paul talked about. In the New Testament church, he had to talk about people in the local church committing horrible sexual sins. He even had to deal with incest, fornication, all sorts of things. He had to deal with whether or not people should be married. He had to deal with meat offered to idols. He had to deal with the church at Thessalonica wondering if Jesus was ever going to come back. And he had people wondering what was happening to the ones who had died, who were wondering if Jesus was going to come back. And that's what he's talking about here. He said there's some things that were hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned, which that's the same root word for ignorant, and unstable, rest, W-R-E-S-T, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Let's talk about this in your notes. A study of the end times is always difficult to understand. But we should continue to show ourselves approved in this labor. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When we look at Scripture as believers... We don't look at Scripture to dissect it and to try to find contradictions and to find problems. We look at it to accept what God has given us and to grow in our knowledge of God. That's why we look at Scripture in the first place. And every once in a while, we do hit some things that are hard for us to understand. Now, it's interesting how a committed believer of Christ looks at that and how someone who's hardened toward God looks at that. Somebody who's hardened toward God will look at the, the hard passages in the Scripture and say, see, it's just too hard to understand. I'm not going to study the Bible anymore. I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard tell me this before. Well, the Bible is just too hard for me to read because I just can't understand it. It's written on a fifth grade level. You know that? The King James Version is written on a 5th grade level. By the way, the NIV is written on an 8th grade level. Just throwing that in. 5th grade level. And we, we've got all these apps. And we've got 
where we can listen to it. And we've got all these sites that we could go to to study it. And yet there are people who say, I just, I've just i never read the Bible. It's just too hard, too hard for me to understand. God really wants us to work at this thing. He wants us to study. He wants us to read it. He wants us to know what it says. And it, here's what I've found. The things that I may have struggled with 20 or 25 years ago in my faith and some of the issues in Scripture that I didn't understand, there are a lot of them I still don't understand. But every once in a while, a light comes on as I compare Scripture with Scripture where I say, whoa, now I understand this. Do you know, I had never understood the prophecy to Ahaz until I studied it this week. I've read that thing a hundred times in Isaiah 7. Never understood what it actually meant or how it all worked until I studied this time, this week. And I've preached out of that passage before. We have to just keep working at the Scripture. We have to keep reading it. We have to keep believing that God wants to show it to us and that the Holy Spirit's there to guide us to all truth. Now, there's the opposite side of this, and we said this in your notes. Some people will attempt to twist. That's what that word rest, W-R-E-S-T, means. To twist these passages to make an argument rather than allowing the Spirit to guide them to all truth. All right, so some people take the Word of God and they wrestle it or they twist it to say what they want it to say. That's why we have cults. Because people have taken passages of Scripture that are the difficult, obscure, hard passages, and they twist it to say something that they want it to say, and they leave out the simple passages. Right? They, they say, well, I think you can lose salvation because I read Hebrews 6, and there's this passage that just really struck me that you could lose salvation. Well, how about read the rest of the New Testament where it says eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, everlasting life, everlasting life, forever, forever, forever. And don't get confused on it. Follow the simple path of Scripture and you will get to the more complex passages with the right idea. But if you try to wrestle the Scripture to be and to say what you want it to say, you're always going to cause yourself problems. And a, a lot of groups do this, and a lot of people do this, and we should not be a part of that. Okay, verse number 17. Ye therefore, beloved, so these are people he loved. These are fellow saints. Seeing you know these things before, what we know before is that there are people out there who are going to twist the Scriptures. Beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Okay? Here's what we said in your notes. Every one of us should take great caution in our handling of God's truth. But for God's grace, any person can fall into error. Do you know any of us can mess up on scriptural topics, scriptural thought processes, any of us can. And there are times where you look at it the next week or days later or weeks later and you think, man, I really messed that one up. That's not what that says. And I have to go back and restudy that. And I just take major topics in our society. Do you know that the political correctness push 
and the progressive liberal push and the humanistic push and the acceptance push are all contrary to Scripture in many ways. And so now you have the Pew Research Forum, I believe this is the number, and I'll go back and check to make sure. I believe that they said that now 47% of Christian young people between the ages of 18 and 26 believe that homosexual marriage is okay. That's of Christian young people. I didn't say of society, of Christian young people. Now, how did that happen? Because we allowed our young people to substitute a mainstream, moralistic push from progressives, from humanists, from this totally contrary thought process, and push it down our throats like this has got to be the accepted view, and it doesn't really matter what the Scripture says. And in fact, if you got up and read Leviticus in most places, they would say that you're doing a hate crime. If you got up and read Romans chapter 1 on the floor of the House of Representatives, it would be in the media the next day that you hate homosexuals. And yet, God is pretty plain on these things. I just chose that one as a just one throw it out there. You could take any mainstream issue, abortion, um, activism, gun control, take whatever you want. People are going to twist to say what they want it to say, and we've got to stick with the Word of God on these things because any of us can fall into error. Verse 18, But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Here's what old man Peter's telling us. It's an old man's secret of not falling backward. And it was to grow up into Jesus Christ, which can only be done in grace. I, when I get to heaven, I want to see video of the first time that Peter ever showed up to talk to Jesus. Because he was a rough customer. Commercial fisherman, scraggly beard, talked like a hillbilly, yelled at people, put his foot in his mouth, cut off people's ears with swords, denied Christ, and yet he preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. He preaches two days later, 5,000 more men come to Christ in one day. And now as an old man, he's saying, never stop growing in grace. We all can take it up a notch in grace every day. And the moment we stop growing in grace, we become embittered, we become critical, we become cynical of Christianity as a whole. And we can continue to grow in grace and we continue to grow in knowledge. I love to watch Brent Stonebreaker um, during church. He's, I mean, he's going at it. He wants to know more of, of God's Word. And he's always pursuing it. And sometimes he'll send me an email on Monday or Tuesday to ask me a question about the message. And sometimes I have to Google the answer. Like, how did he even think of this, right? And I have to actually think sometimes of, of what's going on. He wants to know more. I love that. Paul said that I may know him. 
and the power of his resurrection. Now, to, now Peter says, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see these, these saints who had been through the battles, who had been through the wars, who had been through their own internal conflicts. Paul stood there with the robes as, Peter, or as Stephen was stoned to death as a young man. And you see how God changed them in every way by His grace. And He can do that with us. But we've got to be willing to invest in Scripture. I think it's really where it starts. We have to be willing to invest in it. It's hard work. And you just can't feel like, goodness gracious, I'm going to know the Bible because I go to church on Sunday. It's not going to happen. There's 66 books. You're not going to know anything about Obadiah. We're going to mention Obadiah at church once every five years. And if we said right now, could someone stand up and give us a concise summary of the book of Obadiah? Like, what are you talking about? I can't even do that. You know, give me Jonah. I can do that. Swallowed by a big fish. We've got to study the Scripture to grow in knowledge. And then to grow in grace, we've got to say, God, I'm not just studying the Scripture so I can know more. I'm studying the Scripture so I can do more. So I can live for you. So I can seek your kingdom. And that was what Peter was trying to do. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in the closing word tonight. Have a great week out there, everybody. Great to see you. Father, thank you for this book of Second Peter, whose human author was one of your disciples, and yet whose real author is the Holy Spirit of God, who continues to work in our hearts even now, late in 2015, to study to be approved by you to follow you, to grow in grace and knowledge. I pray that you would shape us and mold us this week. I pray that you would encourage each of our hearts. Help us not to be cynical of the process by which you change our lives, but to follow you. Protect these families, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.